Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode will be hosted by Will Foos, one of my classmates at Drexel University College of Medicine. Enjoy! Hey future doctors, thank you for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Will Foos, and I'm one of Rhea's fourth-year classmates at Drexel University College of Medicine. I'm going into ophthalmology, and I will be your host for today. Today, we are going to cover ophthalmic pathology. We're going to start with some high-yield topics, especially glaucoma, but the rest will very much be a grab bag of mixed pathology. This will be very buzzword-heavy and will be very much like trivia. So don't spend too much time on these questions in step one. If you know it, you know it. If not, move on. Our first topic is going to be glaucoma. Now, glaucoma is a unique spectrum of disease that can be a little confusing. So the first question I have is, what word do you think when you hear glaucoma? Well, for the purposes of step one, when you hear glaucoma, you should think pressure. Largely, most of these glaucoma questions are going to be based around the concept of glaucoma being associated with an increase in intraocular pressure. However, if you really want to understand the specifics of glaucoma, you should understand that increased intraocular pressure is more of a risk factor for glaucoma rather than the definition of glaucoma. Glaucoma itself, as a definition, is a poorly understood disease of the optic nerve that involves thinning of the nerve disc's outer rim. There are many different kinds of glaucoma, and there's a huge spectrum of disease, like I said, including acute angle closure, or also known as narrow angle or closed angle, there's primary open angle glaucoma, there's a variant called anatomically narrowed angles, there's neovascular glaucoma, traumatic glaucoma, and many others. Only the first two that we talked about are really important for step one, but you must be able to separate these diseases. We're going to start with primary open angle glaucoma as the template for how you should think of glaucoma. I have a question now. If you listened to our previous podcast, we discussed optic neuropathy. Do you remember the triad of symptoms involved in optic neuropathies? If you said color vision changes, an afferent pupillary defect, and visual field loss, that'd be correct. Now it's important to think of glaucoma as a type of optic neuropathy, in that the primary clinical syndrome that you will get will be a visual field loss. Now we're talking about open angle or primary open angle glaucoma. Since the clinical syndrome of glaucoma is primarily visual field loss, we know that it's an optic neuropathy, like I said. However, this loss is pretty unique in that it's around the periphery. It's a subtle, creeping loss of vision and is often considered asymptomatic because a lot of patients don't notice this. Now, the important thing to note about primary open-angle glaucoma is that it's a chronic disease. It occurs over a long time, and this whole process is painless, and this is going to be how you contrast it with angle-closure glaucoma. These patients don't notice that they're losing visual field because it's at their periphery, and usually it spares their central vision until very far along in the disease process. Now, I mentioned that glaucoma is a sort of optic neuropathy. However, the other two components of the triad, which usually involve uh, a lot of involvement of the optic nerve, are less common and less characteristic in glaucoma. So some clinical signs that you might see to help you diagnose a patient with glaucoma is an increase in intraocular pressure. 
like I said, this is a risk factor. It's not necessarily the definition, but it's kind of one of the risk factors that is always harped upon by the test. Usually you're looking at an intraocular pressure that's going to be greater than 22 millimeters of mercury. And we get this with a Goldman applinator or tonometry. Um, normal intraocular pressure usually ranges from 10 to 12 on the low end to about 22. Usually they'll give you significantly higher pressures if this patient has glaucoma up near 28 or 30. And uh, that's a pretty big giveaway. Intraocular pressure can also be too low, but this isn't really relevant to step one because largely you need trauma and surgery to induce this. Another diagnostic clue when looking at the fundus is optic disc cupping. The optic disc is where the optic nerve enters into the eye and the nerve fibers splay out into the retina. At this location, it's organized like a bowl with a thick rim and retinal vessels exiting along the inner portion of that rib. Now damage to the optic nerve in glaucoma or glaucomatous cupping occurs when the inner circle of the, or the rim is usually greater than 50 to 60% of the outer rim. This is represented by a number or a cup to disc ratio, a C to D ratio, of less than one. Hence, 50% cupping is going to be 0.5. Step one will probably not give you a picture with a cup to disc ratio of 0.5 because that's kind of the cutoff. Um, usually we use 0.5 or 0.6 as the cutoff. Above that, we would consider the cupping to be glaucomatous, and below that is usually normal. Usually, it'll be pretty obvious with a normal optic disc having a cup-to-disc ratio of 0.2 to 0.3, and a very clearly glaucomatous disc as 0.8 or 0.9. It's helpful to assess the image of the optic disc by imagining a line that's bisecting from top to bottom the optic disc. And then you can try to estimate the total portion of it in tenths, or if it's easier, you can bisect that line again so you essentially have quarters and use the half of that bisecting line to estimate in fifths how much of the, the disc has cupping. And then once you have that in fifths, you can multiply that by two. Now, some risk factors for glaucoma, like I said, increased intraocular pressure is considered a risk factor, even though when you hear glaucoma, you'll probably think increased intraocular pressure. The other risk factors include increasing age, a family history, and African-American descent. Now, we're going to review some of the pathophysiology of glaucoma, and we're going to look at how aqueous humor works. Now, if you think of it like a bathtub, the eye is the, the tub itself. You have the faucet and the drain. Now, what part of the eye would correlate to the faucet and which would co correlate to the drain? Well, the faucet would be the ciliary body. This is creating the production of aqueous, which is going to contribute to the intraocular pressure. Next, we have the tub is the anterior segment. Now, this isn't very relevant for the posterior segment because the vitreous in the posterior segment is pretty static. You can introduce things into that that will increase the intraocular pressure, but you're not generating more vitreous, so it's not going to contribute to glaucoma in the primary open angle type. Next we have the drain. What would the drain be? The drain would be the trabecular meshwork and or Schlem's canal. Now, treatment involves addressing glaucoma 
in this fashion. You want just the right amount of fluid in the tub so that it doesn't overflow and that it's not too little. Uh, with glaucoma, the issue is it overflowing. So we can address this by addressing the faucet, what's going in, or addressing the drain, what's going out. Treatment for primary open angle glaucoma is primarily pharmacologic, or you can use drops, you can use oral medication, and sometimes you can use surgery as well when things get very drastic. We'll focus mainly on the drugs, as the surgery involves eye drains and stents, trabeculectomies, and that's kind of beyond the scope of step one. We're going to start with beta blockers. Now, the main beta blocker used to treat glaucoma is timolol. The primary mechanism of action is that it's going to decrease aqueous production. So, like I said, it's addressing the faucet. You're decreasing aqueous production. And it should be noted that eye drops of timolol are one of the few eye drops that can have systemic side effects. So, a contraindication to timolol eye drops would be for patients that are asthmatic. Now, in the same vein, we've talked a lot in previous podcasts about the importance of the autonomic nervous system. So, beta blockers address that for glaucoma. So do alpha-2 agonists. So, the quintessential one is going to be bromonidine. Now, you can tell this is an alpha-2 agonist because it sounds like the stereotypical alpha-2 agonist clonidine has the onidine suffix in it. And you can remember it's brimonidine, as in you don't want to fill the eye to the brim. You don't want to fill the tub to the brim. And like beta blockers, it's inhibitory towards the sympathetic nervous system, so it decreases aqueous production at the faucet. Now, if you think about beta blockers and alpha-2 agonists, they're both inhibitory to overall sympathetic tone. This can be a little confusing because, like we had talked about, we had said parasympathetic is usually the secretory of the autonomic nervous system. But there's another important mnemonic that I use for the autonomic nervous system, and that's sympathetic equals storage. They both start with S. Now, this is really important for the urinary and GI system in terms of, for example, during a fight-or-flight system, you're not digesting. You feel that there's a rock in your stomach because your GI system has shut down. Hence, you're storing food. So sympathetic equals storage. Now, this occurs in the eye as well. If you can think of aqueous as being stored in the anterior segment, thus sympathetic tone causes storage of aqueous. So the tub is getting full. It's having stuff stored in it. Thus, you want to inhibit the sympathetic storage of aqueous. Now, you can do that by beta blockers, like we said, it decreases aqueous production. The other thing is alpha-2 agonists, which even though they're agonists of, the sim of sympathetic tone, alpha-2 specifically inhibits overall sympathetic tone in those alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2 systems. So, sympathetic is storing. If you're storing, you're storing aqueous, there's more of it, and that would increase pressure. So by inhibiting the storage, you lessen the aqueous production, and that's why beta blockers and alpha-2 agonists, bromonidine and timolol, are important for treating glaucoma. Another drug that stops aqueous production is acetazolamide. Now, if you've heard of acetazolamide, it's used also as a diuretic. Can you tell me what enzyme is worked on by acetazolamide? If you said carbonic anhydrase, you'd be right. 
Now this is another class of drugs that can be used to treat glaucoma. It includes dorzolamide and acetazolamide. And these are, like I said, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. So they all have Zs in it. And their mechanism of action is also to decrease aqueous production. Now if you think of the chemical formula for carbonic anhydrase, it interconverts carbon dioxide and water into bicarbonate. And now this is really important for physiological homeostasis in terms of pH, but one of the side byproducts is going to be water on one side of this equation. So if you inhibit the, the equation and the enzyme that allows for this equation, you decrease production of water essentially. And so this is important in the eye because if you decrease water production, you decrease aqueous production, and therefore you're not contributing to that faucet and that increase in intraocular pressure. Now, it's important to note that acetazolamide is one of the few medications that is not in drop form. It's actually oral. And it has some um, pretty significant side effects. It can cause dehydration and urination because it's also used as a diuretic. It also has the symptoms of peripheral tingling and some lethargy. Now, another medication we use for glaucoma are going to be prostaglandin analogs. Now, this is probably the most effective of a lot of these drug classes, so it's important to know latanoprost. That's the prostaglandin analog. It has prost in its name, and this is kind of the quintessential medication drop that so many patients are on, latanoprost. It's important to commit that to memory. And like I said, it's probably one of the best drugs there are for glaucoma. Now, it works primarily by allowing the drain in this analogy to work better. It involves the uveal scleral pathway. Now, whenever I think of prostaglandins, I think of the O in it, prosto, uh, or prost, there's an O in that, and I think O and open. So prostaglandins work primarily by dilating, and one important prostaglandin is going to be Viagra, sildenafil, tildenafil, and that works by opening and dilating blood vessels. Now, it's a little bit different in the eye in terms of latanoprost. This prostaglandin analog opens the drainage pathway, makes it bigger, allows more drainage, and hence decreases the intraocular pressure. Now, side effects of this are pretty unique. In fact, uh, latanoprost can cause elongation of eyelashes and even can change uh, your iris color and make it a little darker. Um, it's the brand name of latanoprost is called Lumigan, but it's also Latisse if you've ever bought that for elongating your eyelashes. Now some other important things to note about primary open angle glaucoma. Uh, steroids can cause it. Now steroids work by marginating neutrophils, so they can't get to the target. That's why you have that temporary increase in neutrophils in a patient who has been on steroids in their bloodstream even though they're immunosuppressed to some degree. And the same thing sort of happens in your eyes. The neutrophils come into the eye, but the steroids prevent their ability to get out of the eye. So the neutrophils essentially get stuck in the trabecular meshwork and they clog it up. And that, obviously, if you're clogging the drain, causes an increase in intraocular pressure. There are some other ways that steroids can increase intraocular pressure, and in some very specific cases can actually decrease intraocular pressure. 
Um, but largely, this is how I remember that neutrophils get stuck in the trabecular meshwork and you can't drain the aqueous, which increases the intraocular pressure. So largely, as a whole, steroids increase intraocular pressure, and that's why a lot of dermatologists don't like when you use steroids around your eyes. Now, some other things can clog the drain or the trabecular meshwork and increase intraocular pressure. One example is uveitis. Obviously, you have a bunch of white blood cells in the eye causing inflammation, and those can clog up the trabecular meshwork as well. If you have trauma, you can have red blood cells in terms of a hyphema, so this is kind of just a layering of blood at the base of the eye, or even a vitreous hemorrhage. Um, trauma can also cause disruption of the trabecular meshwork. So all of this can contribute to any sort of glaucoma. Another one that we'll talk about later is neovascular glaucoma. Um, in patients such as patients with diabetes, for instance, they get blood vessel growth on their iris. And these new blood vessels don't work the way blood vessels normally should, and they can actually clog up the trabecular meshwork. Now, next we have acute angle closure glaucoma, or closed angle, or na narrow angle. And it's important to think of this, even though it's glaucoma, as fundamentally different from open angle glaucoma. First of all, as its name suggests, it's acute. It occurs in the short term, over a couple of hours, and is more due to anatomy and blockage of the drainage system than really to any risk factors or gradual chronic disease. Hence, the drugs used for open-angle glaucoma are not going to be ideal or appropriate in a case of acute angle closure. Now, these patients are usually incredibly rare. In fact, I still have yet to see a case of acute angle closure despite multiple ophthalmology rotations. But these patients will be younger, and usually there's a situation where there's been a change in light that affects the pupil size, especially with dilation. Thus, when you think of acute angle closure, you always want to think of something that's inducing some degree of dilation for these patients and their pupils. Largely, there will be people who are in a dark movie theater, for instance. So you get some very classic histories like that. Now, the clinical signs and symptoms involve a mid-dilated fixed pupil. Um, and this eye will be red and painful. This is unlike normal angle closure glaucoma, which is not painful. And these patients get headaches, they get a cloudy cornea, they might be seeing halos, and their eye is going to feel hard, and you'll get a sudden degree of vision loss, and it can be a major emergency. Now, the pathophysiology is kind of interesting and unique, and there's a lot of steps to it, but like I said before, you always want to think that there is a component of dilation of the pupil that lends itself to this. So first, these patients may have an enlarged lens or some sort of anatomical variation, a narrow angle, for instance, but it starts with the lens, it migrates forward, and now it's directly behind the pupil. It's still in the anterior segment, but it's in the posterior chamber where the aqueous is made, and it moves forward, and the lens blocks the pupil. And it usually occurs with like I said, dilation of the iris to some degree. Now, the lens, this blocks off drainage of the aqueous from the posterior chamber to the anterior chamber. Like I said, the aqueous is made in the ciliary body. It goes through the pupil and then out to the trabecular meshwork in the anterior chamber. Now, pressure behind the iris now is going to build up because it's pushing the 
lens up against the opening of the pupil, but there's no way for the aqueous to get around it. And so as this pressure builds up, it's pushing the iris and the lens all forward. So you see a bowing of the anterior chamber, and it looks very shallow, for instance. Now this makes the anterior chamber shallow, like I said, and essentially pinches off the angle of the trabecular meshwork, you know, where the iris meets the cornea. So maybe instead of 45 degrees, it's now 15 degrees. Uh, you have a much more acute angle. And this prevents aqueous from draining even further. So now you have aqueous building up in the posterior chamber, and it's just building and building. And then the little aqueous that might even be able to get into the anterior chamber, well, it can't get out because the trabecular meshwork is now thinner and smaller than it should be. And all this blockage, it leads to this drastic leap in intraocular pressure. So primary open angle glaucoma, like we talked about, maybe a few points higher than 22 millimeters of mercury, like maybe up to 30. But acute angle closure glaucoma, it's going to jump to like 50s or 60s even. And it's going to hurt for the patient, like I said, and their eye is going to feel really hard if you touch it. So it's acute, and you have this increased pressure, and all of this contributes to all these other symptoms. Like I said, you have the hard eye, you have pain and a headache. Obviously, your eye is largely innervated by the trigeminal nerve, and all this eye pressure is going to irritate that. And so you might get some referral of pain to other parts of the trigeminal nerve. You might think it's uh, the worst headache of your life, for instance, albeit that's usually associated with a subarachnoid hemorrhage. But like I said, the trigeminal nerve, it innervates the cornea, it innervates the sclera. Additionally, you have this increased pressure that's pushing aqueous into the corneal stroma. Now, we talked about decimase membrane and the endothelial cells, that their job is to basically dehydrate the cornea and keep it clear by pumping fluid out of it. Now, if you have this increased pressure, it's pushing against that pump and it's pushing aqueous into the stroma of the cornea. And because the stroma is now getting fluid in it, it's not going to be as clear as it should be when it's dehydrated. So normally the endothelial cells of the cornea, they pump out the water and keep the stroma dehydrated, like I said. And with too much aqueous pushing against it, they, they have their jobs cut out for it. And so the cornea swells. When the cornea swells, you usually see um, it makes the cornea look kind of bluish. And it's not very clear as well. Now imagine you have a bag of rice, for instance. Each individual grain of dry white rice can allow some light through. It's mildly translucent. However, if you cook it and the grain swells with the water, it becomes white and opaque. Now that's kind of what happens to the cornea. Now you can't see through it, and this is what happens when the cornea can't stay dehydrated. It becomes cloudy, and this cloudiness causes the halos that the patient sees. And it also can kind of make the iris look a little more bluish than it normally is because of this edema. I've always thought of corneal edema as give, it gives the reflection of light reflection a more wet look on the eye. And like I said, it makes the iris appear more bluish or green when the iris might actually be brown. And some patients are particularly at risk for angle closure glaucoma. And these are patients with normally very narrow angles to start with. Now the prognosis of this disease can be really bad. You can get blindness from acute angle closure glaucoma, and that's why this is considered an emergency. Now, we have a question. What two drugs should you never, ever, ever give in a bout of acute angle closure? So whatever you do, do not give atropine or epinephrine. Why is that? 
because of the dilation. Like we said, there's always a component of dilation in acute angle closure glaucoma. If you're stimulating the sympathetic nervous system by either inhibiting the parasympathetic or just directly activating it, you're going to get dilation. Like I said, it's a very important inciting event in this disease and can make it worse. So why might that be? We said that the lens kind of moves forward and blocks off the pupil. But dilation is important because if you think of a radially oriented muscle fibers of the iris, they have to shorten to allow for pupil dilation. Now you might think this would open up the pupil for aqueous to flow around the lens. And first this is kind of wrong because the lens is usually much wider than the pupil has the capacity to dilate to in this normal setting. And next, think about what happens when you contract a muscle like your bicep. While the length of the bicep muscle shortens, the belly of it bulges laterally and becomes bigger, like when you flex your bicep. And this happens in the iris. Thus, if you think about it, the iris is going to become thicker in the little part where it's not dilated, you know? Um, so it's thicker, it's bulging like a bicep, and it causes it to touch the lens and essentially seal off the posterior chamber and pinch off the angle even more so. So it's, it's becoming thicker even though it's opening the pupil. And this is why the eye will always have a, a degree of dilation in an acute attack. And it's also why atropine and epinephrine will only make things work. Now, quick note, often if you're in the setting of an ED, a lot of people are worried about giving atropine. And the answer on the test is never to give atropine. However, like, like I said, it will contribute to the dilation. It will hurt the patient a lot. But it will certainly make making the diagnosis of acute angle closure a lot easier. And in such a setting, like an ED, normally you have the capacity to treat angle closure glaucoma. So don't give atropine if you have a suspicion of angle closure glaucoma and if it seems pretty obvious, but if a patient has vague eye symptoms and needs a thorough eye exam, that should, your worry about angle closure should not preclude dilation for getting a good eye exam. Now next question, what should you stimulate to do the opposite of dilation, and what drug can, can do this? So, you want to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system to cause constriction. And the best drug for this is pilocarpine. So, the treatment for acute angle closure glaucoma should be pilocarpine. It's a parasympathetic agonist, and hence it does the opposite of atropine and epinephrine. It'll constrict the pupil, which helps to open up the trabecular meshwork for aqueous drainage. And if that isn't enough, an ophthalmologist can perform surgery or a laser iridotomy. And basically, you make a hole in the iris that allows for aqueous to bypass the pupil as a route of flowing through and around. And basically, you use surgery or the laser to make the hole, and it fixes it pretty quick. Now, another thing to think about in terms of glaucoma, I know we mentioned neovascular glaucoma, which causes vessel proliferation and it scars down or blocks up the trabecular meshwork, and we also call this rubiosis. Um, this could also be pretty acute in nature, but it's not necessarily the same thing. And we'll talk about it more with diabetes. The next thing we're going to talk about is probably the most common eye condition you'll know of, and it's the cataract. This is opacification of the lens of the eye, and this occurs because of changes in the proteins that make up this crystalline lens. This can occur from natural aging, 
in which case it's usually bilateral. And you can think of it as um, protein that changes with denaturation. This protein is normally pretty clear. And uh, you can think of it like when you cook an egg and you have the clear protein uh, that becomes opaque. When you crack the egg open, it's got the clear protein around the yolk. But then when you cook it, that protein eventually becomes white. Cataracts are essentially the same thing. And they cause symptomatically decreased vision. And you should look back at our podcast about refractive error to really understand that. But it can also cause glare. And typically it can be corrected up to a point by glasses. Because like I said, it is causing refractive error. However, really bad cataracts can give you a milky appearance. And at some point, eventually glasses can't compensate for that in which case the cataract has to be removed. And this is an elective procedure because, like I said, up to a certain point, glasses can compensate for it. And it's important to think of cataracts not really as a disease, but as a natural process in aging. Pretty much everyone gets it at a certain point, usually in their 70s or 80s. And um, there's different types of cataracts based on their location within the lens. There's the nucleus, the cortex, and the capsule, but that's kind of beyond the scope of step one. Now, it's important to think of certain risk factors for cataracts. One is smoking. Excessive sunlight can also contribute to that, as well as excessive alcohol use. Can you name some other causes of cataracts? Well, some trisomies can cause cataracts. Um, I'm going to go through a couple really specific diseases that are associated with cataracts that you should know. One of those is myotonic dystrophy. This is really cool because it has a unique cataract that's called a Christmas tree cataract. It kind of sparkles red and greenish and uh, looks like a Christmas tree. Then there's galactosemia, any sort of version of that, galactokinase deficiency, um, but not fructosemia. And those have a very unique cataract as well. Additionally, torch infections can all cause cataracts based on when they affect the baby in development, but usually the, the quintessential one is rubella. So if you hear of a torch infection and a cataract, it's usually rubella. Some other diseases include Marfan syndrome, but you usually think of that as affecting the displacement of the lens rather than a cataract. Alport syndrome, neurofibromatosis type 2. Steroids and diabetes can also contribute to cataracts, so those are important to know as well. And then trauma as well. This can disrupt the cells that are on the outside of the lens and basically ensure the protein's integrity. So trauma can often accelerate cataracts. Infection can cause cataracts as well in the same vein. Now, fun fact, cataract is derived from the word for waterfall. Um, I used to always get it confused with the word catamaran, which is a boat, but cataract essentially means waterfall because if you're looking at a cataract, it's white and milky like the rushing water of a waterfall. Next, we're going to talk about conjunctivitis. Like its name suggests, it's inflammation of the conjunctiva. Um, usually these patients present with a red eye, and usually it's not super painful, uh, but it can have, have watery discharge and can be irritated. Now, we have a question. What types of conjunctivitis are there? So there's allergic, bacterial, and viral are the main ones. You could also consider chemical... Uh, damage to be a conjunctivitis as well. But allergic, bacterial, and viral are the important ones. And these can be distinguished from each other 
with some unique characteristics. Allergic, for instance, is usually itchy. Bilateral, it's associated with a certain season. And you have these papilla, which are little bumps on the palpebral conge and on the conjunctiva, even a little bit the bulbar. And it's kind of difficult to appreciate, um, but the buzzword is papilla. Bacterial, on the opposite, can be very pussy. And this is the kind you'll have to treat with antibiotics. Usually the go-to antibiotics are going to be erythromycin or ofloxacin. So usually fluoroquinolones and the erythromycin. And these also have papilla as well, but usually these are a lot bigger. Like I said, they have pussy discharge. It's important to really know about gonococcal and chlamydial versions of bacterial conjunctivitis, and this can be really important in babies. Viral conjunctivitis is very common. It's usually caused by the adenovirus, and it's usually self-resolving. Unlike the other kinds, usually you have preauricular lymph nodes and some other viral constitutional symptoms. Um, it's very contagious, and while the other two cause papilla, um, these cause follicles. Now, some conjunctivitis um, adjacent diseases include trachoma, this is caused by chlamydia trachomatis infection. It's not the same as the chlamydial conjunctivitis that babies get. This is largely in third world countries, and it causes scarring infection of the cornea and conjunctiva. A buzzword we usually use as ophthalmologists to mean scarring is the word cicatricial. That's a little beyond the scope of step one, but if the word cicatricial comes up, usually it involves scarring of the cornea and conjunctiva. The eyelashes in trachoma often turn in, that's called entropion, and they start to scratch the cornea. And this whole process of eyelashes turning in, scratching the cornea, is called trachiasis. And this scarring process is really what contributes to blindness. And it's very important, especially in developing nations. Another thing that involves conjunctivitis includes reactive arthritis, uh, formerly known as writer's disease, but unfortunately... Uh, that name, which is easier to remember, was taken away because Ryder was a Nazi. And the mnemonic for this is can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree. So these patients get conjunctivitis, urethritis, and arthritis. And it's usually seronegative, but it's an autoimmune syndrome that follows a GI or genitourinary infection. Once again, that genitourinary infection could be chlamydia. So chlamydia can contribute to conjunctivitis in three different ways. It could be direct inoculation with babies. It can cause trachoma in developing nations. And it can also cause reactive arthritis. Now, it's important to know that reactive arthritis is not the infection itself. Once again, that's not the infection. It's the autoimmune syndrome that comes after the infection. Another cause of reactive arthritis can be campylobacter. Now, there's some other things that look like conjunctivitis, and that includes episcleritis and scleritis. And um, these can be differentiated because they usually are associated with more pain with the eye, and they're a little more localized than diffuse throughout the conjunctiva. Usually uh, more pain with the scleritis than the episcleritis. And you can use phenylephrine to constrict the blood vessels that are more superficial, to differentiate them. So conjunctivitis, the blood vessels will constrict more because they're in the conjunctiva. And same with episcleritis. 
Um, and so the redness will go away, but it won't happen with scleritis, which is much deeper where those drops can't penetrate. Like I said, there's more pain than conjunctivitis, and usually it's located uh, in a localized patch on the sclera and doesn't go onto the palpebral area. Also, it's important to know that scleritis particularly can be associated with a lot of autoimmune conditions. Now we're going to talk about uveitis. This is inflammation of the uvea. Do you remember what the three parts of the uvea are? If you said the ciliary body, the iris, and the choroid, you'd be correct. Now, uveitis can be divided up into anterior, posterior, and intermediate based on which of these is involved. So, anterior, you have the iris and ciliary body. Posterior uveitis usually involves choroid. Intermediate is a little in between, so it's going to show a lot of inflammation in the vitreous. And then there's panuveitis, which is all of the above. And you can think of them as categories. So anterior uveitis is by far the most important. The types of anterior uveitis include iritis and iridocyclitis, but they're essentially the same as squares are rectangles, but rectangles are not squares. They're just more specific. Important signs and symptoms, you can see a hypopion, which is essentially pus that layers in the anterior chamber. You can have keratic precipitates, KPs. You can only see this under a slit lamp, but they're on the endothelial side, and they're just little snowball sort of things that are pressed up against the cornea. Cells in flare, if you see cells floating around in the anterior chamber, or if there's so much protein that it essentially is like driving through the fog with your headlights on, that's cells in flare. And all of this can, can contribute to decreased vision. It can cause conjunctival redness, obviously there's inflammation, and it can cause photophobia. Now it's important to know that photophobia isn't just, oh, I don't like the light that's in my eyes. It's actual pain. And this is caused because the ciliary body uh, in the iris is essentially inflamed. So when it spasms because it's reacting to light, that causes pain. So usually we treat this symptom by dilating the eyes um, with a cycloplegic, and this also causes some degree of paralysis, so the eyes can't dilate or constrict anymore. And so this really helps with the pain in that regards. So like I said, anterior uveitis is really the most common of the uveitises. It's often idiopathic, but is largely associated with HLA-B27 pathology and autoimmunity. So you'll see it in diseases like sarcoidosis, rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, even uh, the seronegative spondyloarthropathies as well. Next we have intermediate uveitis, and this is usually you see a lot of involvement of the vitreous, like I said, and this is really beyond the scope of step one, and it's very specific um, and often associated with other posterior or anterior uveitis, so it's not as important. Now, posterior uveitis is a big catch-all term, and it can include choroiditis, inflammation of the choroid, and can include some degree of retinitis or even chorioretinitis. Uh, and its symptoms, like any uveitis, causes decreased vision and eye pain. Um, some big examples are toxoplasmosis or CMV retinitis, which is also called acute retinal necrosis. And then panuveitis, like I said, it's involvement of all three parts of the uvea, and if it involves an infection that could be introduced, it's often called endophthalmitis. 
So endophthalmitis is a type of panuveitis if you think about it. But it can also be autoimmune, just more severe than anterior or posterior uveitis. Some diseases that cause specific uveitises can cause this. Like I said, toxoplasmosis, even lymphoma, sarcoidosis, syphilis, bichette's, lupus, tuberculosis, you name it. So now we're going to talk about neovascularization and diseases that involve neovascularization. Can you tell me what neovascularization is? Well, if you break it down into its prefix and suffix, you have neo, meaning new, and vascularization, meaning blood vessels. Now, neovascularization, we're going to explain in the context of age-related macular degeneration and diabetes, but it's very important for ischemic processes in the eye. Whenever the retina becomes ischemic, cells release VEGF. VEGF stands for vascular endothelial growth factor, and this essentially tries to grow new blood vessels to allow ischemic areas to get oxygen and nutrients. This is a very important for cancer, but in the eye it's important for a lot of other causes as well. So, you're making these new blood vessels because of the VEGF, but these vessels are often immature and inappropriate. They're tiny, they're numerous, and they're thread-like, and they can scar down really easily. Like I said, they're inappropriate because they're leaky. They can bleed and cause hemorrhage or even a retinal detachment. They can scar down and that can kind of pull on things, producing traction. This can also cause hemorrhage or also a retinal detachment. And it can even grow out of the iris, like I said before, with neovascular glaucoma and block off the trabecular meshwork. Now, like I said, when you hear neovascularization, neovascularization always comes after ischemia and the release of VEGF. Now, it's important to know that this is ischemia and not infarction. So, VEGF is released whenever the cells aren't getting enough oxygen. The cells aren't getting the proper amount of blood, the proper amount of oxygen. They're dying, but they're not dead yet. So they send out a flare gun, the sort of SOS, as their last-ditch effort to say, hey, I need some oxygen, give me some. And that's VEGF. Now, like I said, this brings out blood vessels, but these blood vessels aren't proper. In the case of cancer, they bleed a lot and they contribute to the cancer. In this case, in the eye, they contribute to all these other things down the line that are no bueno. Now, important ischemic diseases to know about that can lead to neovascularization are diabetes, age-related macular degeneration, and central retinal vein occlusion. Now, with the central retinal vein occlusion, it's important to know that it's not the same for central retinal artery occlusion. These patients are ischemic in the central retinal vein occlusion versus the central retinal artery occlusion, it's infarcted. They're not dying. Those cells have died because they haven't gotten any oxygen versus they've gotten decreased oxygen when they're ischemic. Ischemic cells are suffocating. And like I said, they send out the VEGF as a lifeline. Infarcted cells are dead. They can't send out VEGF because they're dead. So, we treat all these neovascular complications with anti-VEGF medications and also some steroids because they have very similar properties. These anti-VEGF medications include bevacizumab, ranibizumab, and a flibercept. Steroids work by 
preventing this vascular growth, but they work more effectively at decreasing the leakage from these vessels. So the first of these neovascular processes we're going to talk about is diabetic retinopathy. Now this is a huge spectrum of disease and has gradations that are really beyond the expectations of what you need to know. But it's important to know that there are types of diabetic retinopathy. The first is non-proliferative. This means that there is no neovascularization yet. However, there can be some issues with the ischemic processes and the damage to the blood vessels. Thus, you can see things like microaneurysms, dot blot hemorrhages, venous beating, cotton wool spots, these things called ERMAs that stand for intraretinal microvascular anomalies, hard exudates, and that's leaked material that has come out of the blood vessels. And you largely treat it in this stage by controlling your blood sugar and treating the diabetes. Eventually, once it gets beyond this, it becomes proliferative. And this is where you start to see the new blood vessels from the VEGF. And the hypoxia and ischemia that comes from the microvascular disease of the diabetes contributes to this. At this point, patients need to be treated with pan-retinal photocoagulation, which is essentially a laser. You blast up the retina in the periphery, and this kills those cells. Thus, this decreases the amount of VEGF that they release. They're not suffocating anymore. They are dead cells. Obviously, you don't want to kill all the retina, because then the patient won't be able to see. That's why you stick to the periphery, and you add little spaces in between each. And that way, you hope to preserve as much of the patient's central vision as possible. Additionally, you can do surgery if you get any complications of the proliferation. And then, like we said before, there's anti-VEGF injections into the eye and steroid injections that help to decrease that vasculature. Now, besides the proliferation and non-proliferative forms of diabetic retinopathy, you can have macular edema. Diabetic vessels leak no matter what. The neovascular vessels always leak. They are really bad, but regular vessels in diabetes do tend to leak. And so this is kind of independent of the scope of step one, but you have leakage of these vessels into the retina, and they can help to separate layers and uh, lead to swelling behind the macula, which can distort vision. So all of this can lead to hemorrhage, vision loss, and even retinal detachment in the vitreous. Next, we have age-related macular degeneration. Now, this is a little different because it has a unique pathophysiology, which involves degeneration of the macula. So there's this layer called Bruch's membrane, which divides the choroid from the retinal pigment pigmented epithelial cells, and that's on the bottom of the retina. And essentially, the retinal pigmented epithelial cells help to supply nutrients to the retina as well. So this isn't really as much of an ischemic process, but like I said, you have a breakdown of Bruch's membrane, and this can lead to topographical changes in the retina, and it can also lead to some ischemia because in Bruch's membrane you get these deposits that essentially are called drusen, and it's basically just deposits of crap that builds up as people age, stuff like lipofusion, for example, and that can distort the retinal 
retina and the retinal pigmented epithelial cells. And the primary signs and symptoms that you get with age-related macular degeneration are called metamorphopsia. Now, what is metamorphopsia? Well, metamorphopsia is a way of describing any sort of distortion of vision that comes from disruption of the photoreceptors. And the best way of examining this is to look at an Amsler grid. So it's a grid with a dot in the middle. And when you focus on that dot, if you have age-related macular degeneration because of the disruption of the photoreceptors, it causes it to be wavy. Now think of it this way. The retina is supposed to lie flat. If you have buildups in Bruch's membrane of drusen or even any sort of uh, leakage there, it's going to push the photoreceptors up. Instead of them lining up in a flat direction, they're going to bulge and it's going to look like a mountain range. And light's going to hit that at different angles and that's going to disrupt your sense of what there is there. So it can cause really any sort of distortion, which is what a metamorphopsia is. Any distortion of vision. But one particular one is macropsia, which is things look bigger than they should be. Or micropsia, things look smaller than they should be. And I always think of metamorphopsia as anything that could happen if you drank one of the bottles in Alice in Wonderland. So metamorphopsia, Alice in Wonderland, everything is wavy and trippy. Now, there's some other symptoms that are not part of AMD, but just kind of fun to think about. So what is a hallucination, for example? Well, this isn't an AMD, and usually this is going to be more neurological diseases, but it's perceived stimulus where there is none, versus an illusion, which is going to be misperception of a stimulus. Now, age-related macular degeneration, like I said, causes metamorphopsia, but it can also cause scotomas and vision loss, depending upon how it um, progresses. Uh, when you do fundoscopy and you look at the retina, you see drusen, which are white, and they look a lot like the hard exudates of diabetes, but these are deeper. They're more in Bruch's membrane. They're yellow. They're not in the cells. They're extracellular, and they're actually pretty normal with aging. A lot of people get drusen. The problem is if you get it under the macula, then it can start to disrupt your central vision and your ability to see things. Now, there are types of age-related macular degeneration. There's wet, in which if you have disruption of Bruch's membrane and issues with the retinal pigmented epithelial cells providing nutrients to the retina, then it can lead to neovascularization. And this is different from diabetic neovascularization because this comes up from the choroid. The choroidal vessels start to push up through Bruch's membrane, and this can also lead to detachment and stuff. And you treat it the same way you treat all neovascularization. But neovascularization means there is new vessels. And wet AMD usually has these new vessels and also edema and fluid in the retinal nerve flares. Versus dry AMD just typically has the drusen and there's no neovascularization. So you can treat the wet type with Anti-VEGF, once again, that's bevacizumab, which is a chemotherapeutic anti-VEGF that's used off-label. Then there's ranibizumab, which is on-label, and a flibercept, which is another one that's not a monoclonal antibody. And like I said, they're all anti-VEGF, so they can also be used for cancer. But you can also help to treat dry AMD 
with multivitamins, usually largely antioxidants. Once again, this is an aging process. Like I said, drusen kind of come up naturally with age. It's just junk that builds up, and it just so happens that it builds up under the macula. Um, so you want to fight the aging, use antioxidants. Also, don't smoke. Smoking leads to lots of junk everywhere in your body, so that's not good. Next we have central or branch retinal vein occlusion. This is an ischemic pathology that, like we said before, can lead to neovascularization. And this is important to think of the tub analogy, but now instead of the anterior chamber, we're going to talk about arteries and veins. So the faucet is going to be the arteries providing new blood that has oxygen. The tub is the retina and the capillaries, essentially, where you have the blood sitting, where you have the exchange of oxygen, and the drain is the veins. It pulls away the deoxygenated blood. Um, although there will be plenty of blood in the retinal capillaries because it, essentially if you block the retinal vein, if it's blocked off, things back up. It backs up into the tub, it backs up into the capillaries. But you can't drain any new blood away. So you have blood there, but that blood is ischemic in the sense that it's not providing any more oxygen because it's already used that oxygen. And it's blocking up space so new blood with oxygen can't come in. So there's still some oxygen, which allows it to be ischemic and not infarctive. But this ultimately can lead to neovascularization. Also, because the blood is blocked on its drainage out, it can it backs up and comes out, essentially. It leaks out, you get all this bleeding. And that gives you the buzzword for central retinal venous occlusion, which is going to be blood and thunder. And it's a lot of blood. You see a lot of hemorrhage, and it tracks along the blood vessels. And the cause of this largely is going to be older patients with hypertension and atherosclerosis. Now, normally you don't think of veins as getting the atherosclerosis blocking them. However, the veins are right next to the arteries when they come into the eye. So the central retinal arteries are right next to the central retinal veins. When you have a lot of hypertension and atherosclerosis, it can lead to some dilation of those arteries, and that can push up against the veins, which are not nearly as strong in their walls, and that compresses those, and hence you get the occlusion and it backs up. So this is very much a disease that comes on with aging and is associated with hypertension and atherosclerosis. So you'll see on fundoscopy retinal hemorrhages, and they track along the, the veins. And like I said, it's going to look like blood and thunder. You have venous engorgement, and you have some edema. And then it leads all to neovascularization. And this particularly can cause neovascularization of the angle and the iris, more so than diabetes, because diabetes, you get a lot of neovascularization on the back of the eye, in the retina, and the vitreous. And it has to get really bad before it makes it all the way to the iris versus a central retinal vein occlusion is really bad all at once. And that way it can actually cause um, this in the iris as well. So one of the complications of all this neovascularization is a retinal detachment. And this is separation of the neurosensory layer of the retina from the retinal pigmented epithelium. So the retinal pigmented epithelium is not part of the retina. The retina is the neurons and the rods and cones above it. And then Bruch's membrane is underneath 
the retinal pigmented epithelium, and then you have the choroid. So from inside to outside, you have the retina, you have the RPE, the retinal pigmented epithelium, and then you have Bruch's membrane, the choroid, and then the sclera. You can have the RPE separate from the choroid, but that's even worse, and you can't really treat that. So, and we don't call that a retinal detachment. Now, retinal detachments, I always thought initially were really hard to conceptualize. You have to think of it first as wallpaper peeling off the wall, right? So there's a tear in it, and it's peeling off. The wall is still there. That's essentially the RPE, the choroid, the sclera, the scaffolding. Everything is still there, but the wallpaper has come off. And the wallpaper is where you are able to get sensation from light, essentially. So that's why it's important. But it's also important to think of it like a, t a tent as well. So the tear isn't the only spot. Fluid can track in underneath that tear and bubble up throughout the wallpaper. And that wallpaper might have bubbles that detach from the wall, but it's not going to fold over and peel like anything else. So I always like to think of it as a tent or whenever you're a kid and you're playing that game popcorn where you have the tent and you're throwing it up and down with balls that pop up and down. That's essentially the retina waving in the wind but the air underneath it is fluid that's tracked under and separated it from the floor. And so all of this can look like a bubble under the retina. And obviously this starts to spread the more it goes on. And then it can get really bad, especially if it starts to involve the macula. So that's kind of what a lot of ophthalmologists are worried about and they try to prevent. And this can be an emergency. Now there are three types of retinal detachment. There's traction, which can occur from pulling. Like, for instance, when you have the scarring up of that, those neovascular vessels, once they stop working normally, they scar up and then they pull on the retina. Then there's regmatogenous, which is just kind of a rip as well, but not connected to anything. Attractional will usually be connected to some fibrous scar tissue. And then there's serous or exudative. So if you have fluid just coming out on its own underneath the retina that can separate it without the use of a tear. And all this can be complications of neovascularization, like I said. So the progress can lead to vision loss, depending on how long the retina is separated from the RPE, which essentially gives it nutrients. An important thing to think about is a posterior vitreous detachment. So as we age, the vitreous jelly starts to liquefy, and it's not a homogeneous jello-like substance anymore. It starts to get a little liquidy in some part pockets and, st and the surface tension it has can pull on the retina. Now, sometimes this can actually pull the retina off and this posterior vitreous detachment is pretty normal. It happens to a lot of people with aging, but it's not normal when it tears off part of the retina. So, this tugging on the retina causes some very specific symptoms that can you can see in a posterior vitreous detachment as well as a retinal detachment. The first is photopsia. So these are flashes of light, like from a camera. You'll usually see it around the periphery of your vision. And this is because the retina can't feel pain when it's tearing. It's sensory, but it's not sensory for pain. It's sensory for light. So it's interpreting that tear as light and not as pain. So you see these photopsias. You can see floaters, 
because anytime something rips off, there can be pigment and such that gets into the vitreous, as well as a lot of the time, because the vitreous has um, liquefied a little bit, there can be floaters in that naturally. So you get floaters, you get photopsias, and then the big differentiation, at least symptomatically, is often that you see a dark curtain. And this is because the billowing retina essentially gets in the way of itself in a retinal detachment. And so this is an easier way to differentiate it from a posterior vitreous detachment, which you don't have to do anything about. And then on fundoscopy, you'll see crinkling in the retina where it's detached and it starts to get wavy. And a big giveaway is actually if you look at the vessels, they won't be as smooth and they'll be more kinked at certain locations. And the treatment for all this ultimately is surgery, that the retina has to be reattached. You remove the vitreous, you flatten the retina, and you fill it with something else like an oil or just fluid or a gas bubble to press it up against the wall. And then you use lasers to essentially spot weld it into place. Now some risk factors for a retinal detachment, like I said, diabetes or any sort of neovascular process can lead to it. Also, you can have trauma to the eye, can obviously knock the retina loose. And then myopia. So high myopes are nearsighted patients, like we said, they, their eyes are too strong and they're a little too long. So think of it as the eye is longer, but the retina really isn't much thicker. So the retina gets stretched thinner and is more likely to tear around the edge. Now that we've finished a lot of the neovascularization processes and the problems that can come from it, we're going to talk about central retinal artery occlusion. Now this is like the tub analogy from the CRVO, the central retinal vein occlusion, but in this case the faucet is clogged. Basically, you get an embolic stroke of the retina, and the retina dies without its nutrients. Dead retina looks white, so you see all the retina becomes white except for the macula, which is usually cherry red because it's the thinnest, and you can see choroidal blood essentially through it. And like I said, this comes from an embolism. It can be a cardiac vegetation. A patient could have a patent foramen ovale. You could have a carotid atherosclerosis, so it's important to figure out why the patient is having this embolic occlusion. And symptomatically, you get profound vision loss in the one eye, and usually it's painless. Um, like I said, you'll see a cherry red fovea while the rest is white. And like I said, that's because the macula is the thinnest area, um, and the choroid still can shine through there. And it's important not to get this confused with Tay-Sachs. Uh, Central retinal artery occlusion will be in adults versus Tay-Sachs will be in kids that will never make it to adulthood and they'll have a lot of neurological problems as well. The treatment for this you would think would be TPA, right? Because essentially you want to get rid of that embolism. However, this is a really controversial thing and often is not used because a lot of these patients were are also likely to have a stroke as well, which can make things a lot worse if you have a stroke and you have TPA and your blood is thin and you're bleeding into your brain. So the first line treatment essentially is going to be oxygen. Uh, it helps to dilate the vessels so you can essentially get that clot, that embolism to go further along its vessel and then ocular massage to kind of help it further along to minimize the amount of damage that it does to the eye. Now we're going to talk about a bunch of other 
random diseases. Um, the next ones involve the retina. The first one is retinitis pigmentosa. This is a genetic disease that leads to painless, progressive vision loss. Usually it starts out with a lot of night blindness. And there's a very unique triad that you can see when you look at the retina. Uh, the, most, the most important of these is the bone spicules. And this is where essentially you have degeneration of the rods and cones, and usually the rods first. Then you can have some arterial attenuation, so the arterioles get thinner. And then the optic disc usually looks a little pale. But really, the big go-to is bone spicules. And this is treated actually very well lately with a gene therapy. Next, we have retinitis. So obviously, you have inflammation of the retina. And this can take a lot of forms. It can be a component of posterior uveitis. Um, it's characterized often by retinal edema and necrosis. So whenever you have retinal necrosis, um, the retina can start to look white because dead retina becomes white. And you can have vision loss. So a lot of retinitis will have fluffy white lesions. And you can also get scarring. Often these patients are immunosuppressed. They can have HIV. And often it will involve very specific infections. Um, and besides the ones that we're going to talk about specifically, some fungal ones can always cause retinal damage. So histoplasmosis and candidemia, especially when it's in the blood, can be really bad. The first we'll talk about is chorioretinitis. So obviously, like its name suggests, it involves the retina, but it also involves the choroid. And this is really unique to toxoplasmosis. So like any retinitis, dead retina causes white scars. But with toxoplasmosis, you also get this hypertrophy of the retinal pigmented epithelial cells. So you'll see a black rim around a lot of these white lesions. Um, it's also important to know that toxoplasmosis is associated with other symptoms, especially neurological. Uh, one of these is intracerebral calcifications. Often, this will occur with patients that are born with toxoplasmosis, but it can also happen with HIV patients. But chorioretinitis is more often in the question stem associated with babies who were born with toxoplasmosis as a torch infection. And this is going to be important when it's contrasted with CMV retinitis, which is going to be more with patients who have HIV and are older. Um, and the treatment for chorioretinitis is going to be trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, or really any sort of analog to that. So I think trimethamine is another one, but a lot of these will have meth in the name, and these are the dihydropterate synthetase inhibitors. And while this can actually help the patient prognostically, it doesn't actually fully eradicate the toxoplasmosis. You can never really fully eradicate toxoplasmosis when someone is infected with it because it can lay dormant forever. Another kind of retinitis that's a big buzzword one is neuroretinitis. This is usually affiliated with Bartonella. Uh, Bartonella can also be associated with HIV. Um, and because it's neuroretinitis, it involves the neurons a little more so in the retina. And the big giveaway for Bartonella is there's this macular star, which is very unique, that you only see in Bartonella neuroretinitis. Next, we have acute retinal necrosis, which can occur from basically any sort of herpes family virus. Uh, the biggest, most significant one is probably CMV, but HSV and VZV can also cause this. CMV, like I said, is most significant, 
and it's going to look often a lot like the chorioretinitis of toxoplasmosis. But like I said, while toxoplasmosis is more likely to be in babies, this is more likely associated with HIV patients. And this will give you a classic fundoscopic picture that's essentially the pizza pie retina. It looks very much like a cheese pizza. Can you tell me what the treatment for CMV retinitis would be? So the treatment would be gancyclovir versus HSV, and VZV would be acyclovir and valacyclovir. It's important also to note that HSV and VZV viruses can infect the cornea as well, causing a keratitis or keratoconjunctivitis. These are pretty unique in that HSV will have dendrite, which are little branching tree-like lesions that enhance with fluorescein. So fluorescein lights it up green, versus VZV will have pseudodendrite, which essentially look the same, but they don't enhance with fluorescein. Now, VZV also involves the trigeminal nerve with herpes zoster ophthalmicus, and this is essentially shingles that goes over the dermatome of the trigeminal nerve. So it tracks all along the one side of the face and can actually go to the tip of the nose, and that's usually pathognomonic for it, and that's called Hutchinson's sign. Like I said, it's essentially shingles, but of the face. And because it involves the trigeminal nerve, you can also get some involvement of the cornea. Now we're going to talk about papilledema. This is a quick review. Um, I wanted to cover some parts that I might have skipped over previously in the neuro lecture. So papilledema, we talked about how it's optic nerve swelling that's associated with intracranial pressure increases. And this is usually associated with brain masses. And it can cause uh, a scotoma or blind spot that grows and it naturally is where the optic disc is because there's no retina there. And when looking at a picture of papilledema, usually you'll see an obscuration of the edge of the optic disc. It won't be a very clear-cut circle. And you won't be able to assess any sort of cup-to-disc ratio. And another big giveaway is often there's a ton of hemorrhage around the disc. And so that's another giveaway for papilledema. And this is associated with symptoms that are essentially blackouts, but it's going to be bilateral. And this is in contrast to our next disease, which will also have blackouts, but it's going to be unilateral. So this disease is amaurosis fugax. Now, what does this mean in terms of words and the etiology of these? Well, amaurosis means dark or obscure, and fugax means fleeting or flight. Think of a dissociative fugue when you have your psych rotations, or box toccata in fugue in D minor, which is a very flying sort of song. But fugue means flight, is what I'm trying to say. And so amaurosis fugax, because it's fleeting or flight-like, it involves a temporary, and here's the thing, it's a temporary vision loss. Now, it's important to differentiate this with central retinal artery occlusion, which is a very similar etiology, but it's not temporary, and papilledema, which is also temporarily, but this is going to be bilateral, versus amaurosis fugax is usually unilateral. And it's frequently described as a curtain coming over one's vision that essentially goes away. So you can see, just in the description of amaurosis fugax, it can sound like the blackouts associated with papilledema. It can sound like a central retinal artery occlusion just because of its etiology. And it can also look a little bit like a retinal detachment.
But, like I said, the blackouts are not bilateral like papilledema would be. The black curtain is temporary versus a retinal detachment. It might come and go repeatedly, but never really goes away. Now, amaurosis fugax occurs because of a carotid artery stenosis that can also throw some clots and cause essentially temporary ischemia to the eye. So the eye doesn't fully infarct, but when it's ischemic, you can't see very well. So anytime a patient has amaurosis fugax, the first thing you should do is get a carotid ultrasound and then get a carotid endarterectomy to essentially fix that. So, like I said, always look for a carotid artery stenosis if you suspect amaurosis fugax, which is a unilateral, fleeting, dark curtain that comes over the eye and then goes away. Some other eye things to remember. We're going to think about thyroid eye disease. So this is going to be with Graves' disease. Patients may be hyper or hypothyroid, depending upon where they are in the course of their treatment and such. And so with Graves' disease, you have the thyroid that's affected by an autoantibody. So thyroid function is not linked to the ocular symptoms. In fact, when you treat these patients, for instance, if you give them a beta blocker to treat their thyroid function, it's not going to have an effect on their ocular symptoms. Thus, patients still have these ocular symptoms, which are going to be proptosis or exophthalmos, along with maybe some degree of strabismus, but that's more in real life than in the examples that will be on step one. So even if the disease is treated, there still may be some residual autoantibodies. Now steroids can help with some of the swelling in terms of the orbital fat and connective tissue uh, that's going to be increased in the extraocular muscles, but sometimes you also have to do surgery once all of this has died down. Now whether or not this patient has thyroid eye disease, you get some very specific hyperthyroid symptoms with the eyes. One is lid lag, in which if you're following a finger with your eyes, your lids kind of lag behind, and you'll see the whites of the patient's eyes. For instance, a lot of these people will be very bug-eyed, and that's also part of the exophthalmos, but it's pretty specific if you can see the whites of the eyes above the pupil and above the iris rather than below or just to the side. Above and crazy eyes equal hyperthyroid. Another thing that I always got confused with thyroid eye disease and graves because it's also autoimmune and has the name gravis in it is myasthenia gravis. Now this is completely different. It does not affect the thyroid whatsoever, but it involves the fatigability of muscles due to the stimulation of the acetylcholine receptors by autoantibodies to those acetylcholine receptors. Now, the eyes are particularly susceptible in which you get ptosis. And now, this is really important for contrasting it with Lambert-Eaton, which is less ocular involving. But basically, you get kind of droopy eyes and ptosis with this, these patients because the eyes are one of the most used muscles in your body, if you think about it. You're looking at things every day. So you really need to use those muscles, and you never really feel them get super tired until the end of the day, but obviously they're going to be most susceptible to these acetylcholine receptor antibodies. Now what's something that is associated with myasthenia gravis that, uh, when treated, often improves the condition? Well, that would be a thymoma. If you treat the thymoma often, that improves the condition of myasthenia gravis. 
Now, we're going to talk about some vasculitises. Um, these can also affect the eyes in many different ways. It often involves the retina, but when you hear sort of any autoimmune disease or disease that involves vasculitis, it can really do almost anything to the eye. But when you think of a vasculitis, often you'll see a retinal vasculature in the posterior segment. You get this sort of frosted sheathing of the retinal vessels, and sometimes you get candle wax drippings, and that's a, a buzzword for that. So this can include diseases like lupus, tuberculosis, syphilis, giant cell arteritis, and they're kind of in the club of we can do anything to the eye. So the first one's going to be lupus. It's kind of that running joke in medical school that lupus can do almost anything, but it really can. So the first things you're going to think about are probably going to be the inflammatory uveitises and then some vasculitis on the back of the retina. The more important ones are going to be the three pretenders that we're going to talk about. So that's going to be sarcoid, syphilis, and tuberculosis. And like I said, these can do almost anything in the eye. Sarcoid uh, is usually associated, once again, with anterior uveitis and vasculitis. Usually it's more the anterior uveitis than anything else. Uh, it's very common, and it involves the eyes. You want to check the ACE, or angiotensin-converting enzyme that's in the serum, and that's usually associated with sarcoidosis. And then you also want to get chest x-ray to look for hilar lymphadenopathy, which really helps with the diagnosis. But it can very commonly affect the eyes, especially with anterior uveitis. Once again, syphilis can also do almost anything anywhere in the body, but especially in the eye. So, question. What's a notable ocular finding of tertiary syphilis? If you said argyle Robertson pupil, that would be correct. Um, this is particularly notable because it's very unique in the sense that the pupils do not constrict with light, but do if the patient is accommodating. So if the patient's focusing on something up close, they'll accommodate, their eyes will constrict. But if you shine a light in their eyes, it won't constrict. So they'll have big dilated eyes. And it's kind of interesting to think of that we as a culture kind of value dilated eyes. We think it's pretty. And so you think of prostitutes back in the Middle Ages who had syphilis, you know, they have dilated eyes and that might have contributed to their wares. But it's a good association to think about. So they're going to be dilated eyes. They don't constrict with light, but they do accommodate. So they work close up. Now, syphilis in the retina is always equal to neurosyphilis. If you see any sort of syphilis in the eye, it's automatically neurosyphilis, even if you can't find any evidence of it in the spinal cord or in the brain. So you need to treat it with lots and lots of penicillin, and it needs to be on the regimen for neurosyphilis and not secondary or primary syphilis. This is tertiary syphilis. The next is tuberculosis. Once again, this can do almost anything, but it's also really important to note that the treatment of tuberculosis can be just as bad for the eyes as the disease itself. And we'll talk about those drugs later on. Some other vasculitises that can be important are giant cell or temporal arteritis. Um, this is the granulomatous inflammation of the carotid artery and its branches. And it can be really important because it can damage the ophthalmic branch, which can basically cut off all blood flow to the eye and thus cause blindness. And... So this disease is very concerning because it can cause blindness. Other important symptoms that give you a clue to this are jaw claudication. If the patient has cramping in their jaw, 
if they have polymyalgia rheumatica, which is kind of a shoulder pain and arthritis. And almost all these patients are going to be over the age of 60. So you don't have to worry about this if the patient is in their teens or 20s and coming with uh, vision loss and other sort of symptoms that are vague. But it's important to check the ESR and the CRP for these patients. That can be a big giveaway. But you ultimately have to do a temporal artery biopsy to diagnose this. And then you also want to treat them with lots and lots of steroids. And actually, the ophthalmologists are usually the ones who do the temporal artery biopsy. Fun fact. Some other conditions that just have important findings and things to note about the eye. These are going to be very random from now on, but we're just going to try to hit everything. Endocarditis. The Roth spots are the key finding in this if you have endocarditis, and these are fibrin aggregates that occur in the retina. And they're going to look like hemorrhages, but they usually have a white core. Now, endocarditis is usually the first thing you should think of with this, but it can occur with other things like lymphoma as well. But that's not going to be in step one. It's going to be endocarditis if it's in step one. Next, we have styes and chalazians. And we've all probably had these. They're sort of hard, plugged up meibomian glands. The styes are usually acutely inflamed in red, while the chalazians are usually harder. But they're essentially uh, plugged up meibomian glands. And then you drain them to get rid of them. Uh, we talked about in our first lecture about the prefix dacryo, but that usually involves the nasolacrimal system. So if you have dacryocystitis, you have inflammation of the nasolacrimal sac, which is going to be right next to the eye, in between the eye and the nose, versus dacryoadenitis, which is going to be inflammation of the lacrimal gland. We also have orbital cellulitis, and this is essentially cellulitis where you have it on the orbit. So what's the big deal here? Well, if it's preceptal, there's a septum, which is basically within the eyelids. It's going to be treated just like cellulitis. It's just on the skin, essentially. But when it becomes postseptal, it gets behind it. That means it's gotten into the orbit, and it can affect the extraocular movements and the extraocular muscles. So the symptom beyond just pain and redness and heat in the location, is now you have painful extraocular movements, and you might not even be able to move them. And this, we talked about, is very concerning, because previously it can eventually involve the cavernous sinus and cause a lot of issues for the brain as it spreads backwards. So that has to be treated very aggressively. Sjogren's disease, once again, any sort of autoimmune disease can often be associated with an anterior uveitis, but... Sjogren's is known particularly for dry eye and dry mouth, so it causes damage to the lacrimal glands. Hence, a lot of these patients have really bad dry eye, and this can damage their cornea a lot. Accommodative esotropia, we talked about this. These are the farsighted kids who cross their eyes in order to accommodate and help them to focus on objects, and you correct this with glasses. Something we didn't talk about that can be a pretty quick, easy question is going to be retinoblastoma. The big thing to know about this is the two-hit hypothesis with the RB gene, in which if you knock out one of these genes, you basically have two of them. So knock out one, you have one left. If you knock out that one, it, you will develop cancer, and it will be really bad. So people who have this familial gene knocked out are already at a huge risk and tend to develop retinoblastoma really early. Now, it's important to look for kids with this by looking at their red reflex. So you shine a light in their eye, 
and you should see a red eye like when you take a picture and it doesn't correct and you see red eye. But let's say you take a picture and one eye is red and the other one's white. Well, that's concerning. That's called leukocoria. And this white eye reflex means that there's something in the eye. Sometimes it can be a congenital cataract. Sometimes it can be issues with the vitreous formation. But for the purpose of step one, it should always be retinoblastoma first and foremost. And this is a really bad cancer in that it's fatal if you don't remove the eye, which is called an enucleation. So these kids need to have their eye removed very early. But these kids may also develop osteosarcoma later in life, which is another concerning thing that disease usually pops up on their knee in their teens. So that's another important association that you should know about. Next, there's melanoma is another really important disease and cancer of the eye. Pretty much any sort of dermatologic cancer can also be in the eye, but melanoma is particularly important because the uvea is a primarily composed of melanocytic tissue and it's a neurocrest involvement. So thus the eye can get melanoma in the retina or have melanocytic lesions pretty much anywhere, like the conjunctiva or sclera. However, there can be some degree of pigmentation in the sclera and conjunctiva, which can actually be normal for people of color. Next, we have the cherry red macula. Like I said, this can occur when you have a central retinal artery occlusion. However, it's also associated with a lot of neurodegenerative sphingolipidoses. So the big one that comes to mind is Tay-Sachs. You hear Tay-Sachs, you think cherry red macula. The other one that you have to watch out for is Neiman-Pick disease which is also associated with hepatosplenomegaly in addition to the neurodegeneration, versus Tay-Sachs does not have the hepatosplenomegaly. Like I said, all these are neurodegenerative sphingolipidoses, and they're often associated with kids whose parents are Ashkenazi Jews or, some fr or of French-Canadian descent, um, and these kids unfortunately don't make it to adulthood. Another thing we can talk about is retinopathy of prematurity. This is a blinding disease that is also associated a lot with the VEGF sequence, but this is in developing children, and these are usually premature kids, and it can involve, involve their exposure to oxygen while they're in the NICU as well. So there's a lot of very specific protocol that goes around these kids. If you think of retinopathy of prematurity, one famous person who has it is Stevie Wonder, for instance. Now, here's a question. What else causes a cherry red macula besides Tay-Sachs? If you said central retinal artery occlusion, you'd be right. Some other diseases, Hurler syndrome is another sort of mucopolysaccharidosis, so it's an issue with the lysosome, which can also be associated with sphingolipidoses. Um, it's important to the eye because it can have corneal clouding. So Hurler syndrome has corneal clouding, and it's a way to differentiate it from Hunter syndrome, which is a very similar mucopolysaccharidosis. Some derm diseases have a lot of overlap with the eye because the cornea has keratinocytes, and there's also a lot of mucous membranes. So pemphigus vulgaris, for instance, can involve the mucous membrane of the eye. Also, Stevens-Johnson's can affect the mucous membranes of the eye as well, and this comes from sulfa drugs, and it's kind of a hyper-intense rash, and it can be really bad. These patients get treated like burn victims in the burn unit, and ophthalmologists are almost always 
consulted. Hypertension obviously can affect the vasculature in the eyes, and the eyes are a great way to see what's going on. Like I said, it was associated with central retinal vein occlusion, but some of the things you see in the eye can be silver wiring. So the retinal arteries look more like silver wire as their walls get thicker and they have less blood in them. And then you can also see AV nicking in which the arteries override the veins and make them nick. Another thing we talked about in terms of the parasympathetic innervation of the eye involves anisocoria. One thing is the ADs tonic pupil, and this is caused by damage to the parasympathetic innervation of the eye. So one will be dilated and the other one won't be so much. You get anisocoria. And the eye may accommodate or react slowly to light. And there can be a lot of etiologies of this, um, but usually you get the symptom of a dilated pupil that doesn't respond very well to light. So you want to really interrogate neurologically what could be going on here, but it could be an answer as simple as some trauma that damaged the parasympathetic fibers. Lastly, we're going to talk about drugs and just some quick buzzwords and what you should think about. The first one, we're going to talk about some antipsychotics. There's chlorpromazine. So this is an antipsychotic, and it's important to know that there is a C in this. So the C correlates to the cornea. So you get pigmented corneal deposits with chlorpromazine versus thioridazine is the other antipsychotic. However, there's an R in thioridazine, and that correlates to retina. So there's pigmented retinal deposits that are brownish and reddish in discoloration for thioridazine versus chlorpromazine. Usually they're a little more yellowish, sort of like corn, corneal, etc. Then there's sildenafil and tadalafil. So Viagra and its similar prostaglandin analogs. These can cause some optic neuropathies um, with the vasculature that supply that. But it, the most important symptom you should know for that is that they can cause blue vision or cyanopsia. Next we have the medications that you use to treat tuberculosis. Like I mentioned before, they can be damaging to the eye as well. So the first one you want to think of is ethambutol. Uh, it's the E in the ripe therapy. And E is for eyes. It causes an optic neuritis or neuropathy. So it directly damages the optic nerve. It doesn't deal with the retina. It doesn't deal with other things. It damages the optic nerve. Isoniazid also does the same thing. So the way I remember isoniazid is that it's INH. So injures nerves and hepatocytes. INH. Now, obviously, there's a lot of nervous tissue in the eye, so it can damage the optic nerve itself, as well as other parts of the brain. And it's really important to fortify against that by giving B6. Opioids cause the added effect of pupillary constriction. Steroids can cause cataracts and also increase intraocular pressure. Hydroxychloroquine, like a lot of chloroquines, it can be used for malaria, but also is used to treat lupus can cause a maculopathy, uh, so damage to the retina, and it's usually described as a bullseye maculopathy. Doxycycline can cause pseudotumor or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, as well as Accutane uh, or vitamin A analogs can cause pseudotumor as well. So basically anything that can treat acne, doxycycline or Accutane, can cause pseudotumor. And also the patients who get pseudotumor are often 
patients with acne, they're often uh, overweight, young female women. Additionally, we have sympathetic agonists, along with parasympathetic antagonists. Those all work to dilate the pupil. And the opposite, parasympathetic agonists and sympathetic antagonists can cause pupillary constriction. Now, bisphosphonates can cause uveitis and scleritis in an autoimmune way, so it's important to know that. A lot of chemotherapeutic agents can actually cause corneal toxicity, especially tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So like imatinib, for instance, disatinib, anything ending with inib can cause sort of dry eye corneal toxicity because these are fastly dividing cells. Topiramate is the only one associated with angle closure glaucoma. Tamsulosin, so Flomax, you use it for the bladder, can cause floppy iris. And amiodarone causes these world corneal deposits and optic neuropathy. Once again, if, you're, if you get any sort of question that has a random drug side effect, usually it's going to be amiodarone. Another thing, methanol can cause uh, an intoxication with an optic nerve damage and optic neuropathy. Um, it's part of the mud piles, so you'll also see an anion gap in the uh, question stem along with patients who might be distilling their own moon moonshine, for instance. So to review, it's important to understand glaucoma and its relationship with eye pressure. You should understand the difference between acute angle closure glaucoma and open angle glaucoma and how those differences impact treatment and how you think about the disease. Understand the types of eye infections and what part of the eye is affected. Understand the effects of steroids on the eye involving increased intraocular pressure and cataracts. Understand that neovascularization is an important process and it's an important ischemic process that under scores a lot of eye disease from diabetes to central retinal vein occlusion and it can also be an age-related macular degeneration etc. Understand the complications of neovascular processes involving bleeding, hemorrhage, edema, retinal de detachment and then hopefully remember some buzzwords for some of the esoteric diseases and drug reactions that we just briefly covered and understand how importantly that retina is interwoven with the vascular system. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast and leave your questions, comments, and concerns at spoonfulofsugar.org. We'd love to hear if there's any sort of ophthalmic pathology that you'd like for us to cover that has not been covered. Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.